Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, you know we're in uh, Proverbs chapter 26. And uh, we have been uh, studying in this chapter uh, some great concepts. Actually, it's just kind of like studying the workings of a fool. And, uh, you know, uh, the theme of the uh, book of Proverbs is a wise man and a foolish man, and there's much said about both of them. And we've been studying together this chapter from the aspect of seeing and understanding uh, the great contrast between uh, a man with the understanding of God, that'll be our wise man, and then a man without the understanding and the wisdom of God, and that'll be our fool. And, uh, you know, we talked about the great differences between them. I gave you Amos 3.3, how the Bible says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? And, of course, we see this when we work with people, that people that don't want to follow the Bible and change and do what's right very quickly, it becomes obvious that there's something there that you guys, you know, can't walk together in the thing anymore. And uh, I, I told you that, you know, in chapter 26, there's somewhere around 10 or 11 different direct references uh, to a fool in this chapter. And you can learn a lot from them and uh, about ourselves and about, you know, the people that you work with. And so far, you know, the first one we saw in verse 1, and, uh, you know, we saw that a fool is like snow in summer and rain in harvest. And I explained to you those two how that, uh, you know, they're contrast. Uh, it doesn't snow in the summertime, and when it rains in the harvest, you can't get the crops in. And we talked about how that's the way a fool is. They're just opposite everything that God wants them to be or, or God wants them to do. Then the second one we looked at already is in verse 3, and it talked about a whip for a horse, a bridle for an ass, and a whip for the back of fools. And we talked about how that all three of these have in common that until they're broken, they're unrideable, and we used a lot of different examples to show you how that, uh, you know, we have to get broken to the things of God before God can ever uh, take us and, and use us. Then uh, one of the, two of the best ones that, that I've always used, and I told you about three and four, is found in verse four and five, and that's where it says, to answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like him, and we talked about how that when you deal with fools, and you find them in two different categories. You have some that are just fools because they're ignorant of things. So you don't clobber them. You, you, you answer them. You give them uh, what they need. And then verse 5 said that you answer a fool according to his folly, that's thou be wise in his own conceits. And we talked about how that is the fool that is unteachable. And we used many examples to show you how, how that you do that with the American cults and, <clears throat> and different religions and all the things that we deal with. Then last week, the fifth one was found in verse 6, and uh, that was a good one, a message in the hand of a fool, and how that uh, it's always going to be a, it's always going to come back to bite you, trying to send somebody out to do God's work before they're ready to go out and do it, or when they're still in a foolish mindset, uh, you know, and it says, cut off the legs and drink a damage, it's going to hurt you, it's going to come back and bite you. And then, of course, it also said, the sixth one last week, in verse 7, the legs of the lame are not equal. And that was a picture of somebody out of balance in their walk with God and not, you know, walking on, on equal ground. And then uh, probably the greatest aspect of last week was the understanding of when he said the parable in the mouth of a fool. How important the parables are in putting the Bible together and understanding it. And literally nobody today that you're going to read, that you're going to listen to, that you're going to study under, even has a clue to beginning of understanding how these parables fit into not only the story itself, <clears throat> like the parables in Matthew, parables of the kingdom, but in the whole putting the Bible together. And I gave you some good examples of that. In fact, I think Thursday night I walked you through some of those. <clears throat> now today, <clears throat> let's look at a couple of more um, uh, verses here, and we're going to add a couple of more to our studies of a fool. And we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 8 and 9. Here's what 28 says. As he that bindeth a stone in a sling, so is he that giveth honor to a fool. Verse 9 says, As a thorn groweth up into the hand of a drunkard, so is a parable in the mouth of a fool. Uh, Zach, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on our service this morning, buddy? Heavenly Father, thanks for this.
this opportunity we get to open up the Bible again. Just, Lord, help us to one last time get all the distractions <coughs> Help what you put on Bob's heart to come across. <coughs> we pray that that seed would go down into our hearts, Lord, and it's brought up the fruit that you want to produce in our lives. We pray and ask these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now let's look at verse 8 first. And uh, it says, <coughs> As he that bindeth a stone in a sling, so is he that giveth honor to a fool. Now here again, uh, it may not look like much uh, <laughs> as you read it, but trust me, uh, there's a great principle here, <clears throat> and we want to unearth that today as we uh, come through it. We're all going to put on our trained eyeglasses, so we'll get them out and put them on, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll see what we got here. I want to break verse 8 down into two parts to better understand and help you grasp it and see what he's saying. I think that will be beneficial today. So let's look at part one here. And it says, he that bindeth a stone in a sling. Now, to see all of this, uh, allow me a moment to lay out a few things uh, for you here that I think will better put it into a context for you. Now, we know that the Old Testament is about literal nations uh, going to war against each other. We know that when God called the nation of Israel out, out of Exodus chapter 12, set them out to the promised land. There was nations along the way that the devil was using to stop them. Egypt himself, themselves, was of the devil to keep them in bondage and to wipe them out. Of course, it only made them stronger. But while they were down there in that time period in in Egypt, uh, the devil was fortifying the land that God had given and promised to Abraham with hundreds of nations. And uh, these nations stand for one purpose, that is to stop the nation of Israel by the devil's design from getting into the land. So we see the books like Numbers. Numbers is the book in your Bible that simply means that they were numbered for war, getting ready to go to battle. You have the great battles in the book of Joshua. You have great battles uh, in the book of Judges. It's, it's, they're everywhere in the Old Testament. And in Old Testament warfare, and here's what I want you to see, the sling, we know it as a slingshot. Every kid growing up in my time had a piece of a tree branch, you know, that was a wire, and you put rubber bands on it, and you could shoot, <clears throat> shoot things with it, you know. In the Old Testament, they had slings. And I, we don't think of a, you know, with, you, with your Glocks and your Sigs and your Smith & Wessons and your Colts, we don't think of a slingshot as a formidable weapon. But let me tell you something. Back in the day, in the Old Testament, the sling was an incredible, formidable weapon in the right hands um, to what we think of as a slingshot today. Most notable comes to mind, I get it, David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. He takes out Goliath with a slingshot. And uh, yet, if you study it a little more, you begin to see how it was used. In Judges chapter 20, verse 16, it says clearly that the nation of Israel had 700, that's seven with two zeros after it, 700 chosen men that were left-handed who could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and never miss. Now, that's pretty good feat. That's like, you know, putting, you know, a bottle cap on the top of a fence post at 50 yards and knocking it off with a slingshot. And, uh, you know, it, it was an incredible thing. And then along with that, in Judges chapter 20, in the next verse of verse 17, it says that they had uh, a, a whole bunch of swordsmen, men who were skilled in battle with fighting with a sword. And then along with that, you had uh, what they called the uh, bows and arrow guys, the archers. Now in the Bible, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 40, bows and arrows are called artillery. We get our word from it in the military today because, you know, uh, we have an artillery battalion and there'll be 175s or 155s or whatever it is, cannons, and they'll rain down destruction on the enemy, and so they're called artillery. But in the Bible, guys with bows and arrow archers are also called artillery. Now, let me explain to you how it worked, and we'll get back to the sling here. I'll make my point in a second, but you got to understand this first because most of you <coughs> don't understand how they fought back in the Old Testament. I mean, they were much more, much more sophisticated. I mean, you know, uh, warfare today has moved into the guerrilla warfare movement 
where everybody is camoed up, you wear it look like a tree stump sneaking through the woods, you know, and you kill people indiscriminately. It, it never was that way. World War I uh, was a very, you know, was a very uh, uh, a, a civilized war, even though it killed I don't know how many millions of men. When the fighter guys would fight, uh, you know, they would shoot somebody down. They would actually fly over their base and drop a wreath down. They shot the guy. That's pretty good. In the medieval times, they only fought, they fought from, oh, I don't know, 9 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock at night, and then they took the night off. And if you had a real good war, you didn't work weekends. In fact, the standard saying in the German Prussians during that period of time is in case of rain, the war will be held in the auditorium. It was a thing where it was very civilized. Chivalry was the word. And, uh, you know, and back in these times, it, 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 it was different. You had two armies that faced each other. You saw it in the Revolutionary War. Stupidest thing you ever saw in your life. First of all, you have these guys... You know, you don't want to be a target in battle. So you have these guys in the Revolutionary War all wearing red coats. That'd be your first red flag that you shouldn't wear a red coat. And then they line up in straight lines, maybe a line here of 5,000 guys and a line maybe 100 yards away of the opposing guys. You just shoot at each other. And, you know, it's, it's stupid. And, uh, but it was, more, it was more civilized back then. Today, it's gotten murderous. And I'm, uh, it, you know, I mean, I'm not against that. When you fight a war, you want to win. I mean, I wouldn't, if I was going to fight a war, I wouldn't stand across from a guy to shoot at him. I'd sneak up behind while he's looking for me and kill him from behind. That's how you do it. But anyway, so get in your mind now a picture of an Old Testament battle. You got 10,000 guys in a line of march lined out this way. They're all abreast. And they're coming toward you and your army to do battle. When they get about 200 yards out, they're still marching towards you. The first thing you do is let your artillery go. You have 1,000, 2,000 archers back here with unlimited arrows. They'll stretch toward the sky, and they'll rain artillery or arrows down on that, on that army. Now, in theory, I mean, it, it does, theory doesn't always work in battle, but in theory, here's how it worked. If you have a 1,000 guys and you shoot 10 times each a minute, then you're going to pretty much wipe everybody out if every time you fire your arrow, you're going to hit somebody. Now, it doesn't actually work that way, but that's the mindset. I guarantee you it whittles them down to size. Now, at least let me say this. There is nothing more scary than being in a war zone place in an artillery barrage when it's coming down on top of you. It's absolutely frightening. I can't imagine guys looking up and see the sky black with arrows coming down on top of them. But here's what they did. When the troops saw the arrows coming, they would hold up their shields and protect themselves from the oncoming artillery. Now, this is called in the Roman warfare uh, a testuo, where they held their shields up and the arrows obviously hit the shields. Roman legions did it. Alexander the Great did it. And uh, it was to their advantage because when these artillery, these thousands of arrows were raining down on you, when you put your shield up, if you had a good shield, you didn't want to get one from Walmart. You wanted to get a really good one. <laughs> it would stop the arrows and you would survive. And, of course, that's, you know, that's, that's how it worked. And when they did that, they left the, put it over their head, they left the rest of their bodies and their legs exposed. And the way it worked was once the archers launched the arrows, they put the arrows up. You had 700 men who could sling a sling with a stone in it who never missed and they would put out at knee level a barrage of 45 caliber slugs, stones, at about 900 feet a second. And they'd take them out wave after wave. The theory here was, if you have 700 men that shoot 10 a minute, and you have 7,000 guys coming your way, you wiped them out in just 10 times. Now, that's in theory. But you could see, once the arrows come over, you're going to take out a bunch of guys with the arrows. But they got their shields up. And then the slingers let go and take them out at kneecap level. Then you're going to, and then all that's left is your swordsmen go in and they kill everybody that's left. That's how it was supposed to work. And I said all that because a sling back in those days, Bible times, was a formidable weapon in, in battle for its day. 
I mean, when old David went out and fight Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 and 18, old Goliath is probably 14 feet tall. He probably weighs about 800 pounds. The Bible says the, 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 the staff of his spear is like a weaver's beam. That's a six by six. And this little guy with a sling, with this guy standing there who could just break him in half with one sling with one stone, took him out right between the eyes. And down he went. It's like getting hit with a golf ball hit by Arnold Palmer and you're 40 feet away. I guarantee you, you get hit with that, you're absent from the body and present with the Lord, man. <laughs> now, I know I give you guys tough times about playing golf. And I think I always say, and you know, I say a lot of things I don't really mean. Half their sermon, I don't really talk to them. <clears throat> but I, 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 I played golf for a while, Bubba. I did. And uh, those of you older days, you know that that's true. I played golf. I went and got me a set of golf clubs, and everybody was playing. I thought I'd give it a try. <clears throat> they told me <clears throat> that I could hit a golf ball harder and farther than anybody they ever saw. I got to get into it, man. My problem was it would never go straight. <clears throat> I never learned all the things, you know, how to give it straight. And the last time I played golf, I was with four or five guys. It was over here where uh, um, Sterling Acres is, where they used to have a golf course across there. There's apartments now. And last time I ever played, I teed off, and I don't even remember the club sizes. I didn't ever know. I used to have somebody tell me what club to use, but I could hit that sucker. You give me whatever. I can knock it out there. And so I'm here. There's the fa- fairway. There's the green. There's the fairway. I've got to hit it down here. Here's the road coming down here with... Every all the other golfers and they're on golf carts, okay? Man, I hit that. I mean, I cracked that sucker so square on. But the problem was there's a golf cart coming this way with four guys in it. That golf ball went right for that golf cart. It, it was like slow motion murder. I, 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 you know, I, I wanted to yell four. But I thought they'd think I was being a smart aleck because there was four guys in it, and I thought they were, they were thinking I was taking them. And that ball, I remember like it was yesterday. It went in at the top, you know, and it rattled around like a pe- And these guys were ducking it, driving this cart all over the place. And that ball was... And I thought, that's it, I'm done. I said, I, I, I'm not going to cut my ministry career short by a life sentence of murder. Uh, it was the last time I ever played. But I know the power behind that thing. And you take a guy who can, you can take a guy who can and put a, put a, put a, a, a stone in a sling and, and put that sucker out there that he can hit something with it. I mean, it's coming out of there about, like I said, about 800, 900 feet a second. It's, it's, it's harder than in the golf ball because you can really wind up with it. Now, that's a historical application other than the little golf story I told you. Now, let's look at and how it fits into uh, you and me and our, and our fool here. Now, we know that in a, we're in a spiritual warfare, spiritual battle. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not swords and slings and, and literal things, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And, and, you know, and, and it, it says in Ephesians chapter 6 that, you know, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of spiritual wickedness in high places. But what you want to understand is that we're in this battle, you and me, and God wants you and me to be a formidable weapon for him. Our battle is not physical, and God wants us, you and me, to be that formidable weapon in his hand. God wants you and I uh, to, to be that sling that when you take the stones. Now, in the Bible, the Bible is in Christ and God is a rock. But the stones is, is a piece of that rock. And so the, the stones would be a picture of the principles, the verses, the, the, the concepts, the truths. That we are, God wants to take you and me, just like the guy took a sling and put Bible truth in that thing and nail somebody with it. And you and me as a fine instrument of war in the hands of Almighty God to, to slay the enemy. 
when you go over in Deuteronomy chapter, uh, excuse me, uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, you'll find it talks about the stone cut out of a mountain of God. That's Mount Zion, the stone uh, made without hands. And God wants you and I to be that formidable weapon that he can take you and me like, like they took a sling in the Old Testament with the enemy of God coming after them like Goliath. And, and, and take Bible truth in the form of the stones and, and launch those things toward our enemy and I'll show you how it works here. Now, if you were a slinger, <laughs> if you were a slinger in the Old Testament and you would really, I mean, when you got a really bad cold, then you were called a slinger, if you know what I'm talking about. I know. I, yeah, I just thought that I should have let it go, but I didn't. <laughs> If you were a slinger in the Old Testament, in a battle, you would target two areas of your enemy. You, you, you would go for a headshot or you would go for his knees. Because those are the two most vital areas to take somebody out. Hey, in a fight, I don't care if the guy's 300 and 400 pounds. You crush his knee and take him out, he's going down. And it didn't matter. Goliath was 13, 14 feet tall. He outweighed David by tons. And it was one stone placed at the right spot. And his day was over. And it's the head and the knees. And it's a picture for you and me that when we put out, when we sling forth, when we shoot forth the stones of truth, the principles, you choose your target. You either go for the head where that guy is thinking intellectually or you go to his knees where his walk is a walk in the world. And God's people need to see uh, this warfare and see themselves as the instrument in God's hands to put out the word of God to nail somebody where their thinking is or nail somebody where their walk is. Allowing God to swing out the truth, put out the truth through you and me and hit them where it hurts. We saw this when we talked about the two verses there. Answer not a fool according to his folly. And then answer a fool. We saw the two kinds of fools. And I went into great length that day to show you the biblical principles took you through the Bible, took you through history. Those are all stones that you launch on them. And the faster you can sling those stones to them of truth, the harder it is for them to deal with it. And you go after their intellect. You go after what they've been taught. And then you go after where their walk is because they have no walk through history. And you've got to take Bible truth, Bible principles, and like in the hand of a slinger, put those stones in there and nail that guy. You go after what he thinks and you go after where he's going. And it's an incredible picture. Verse 8 says, he that bindeth a stone in a sling. Now, in the military, uh, this is our fool, by the way. In the military, uh, we would call this guy a misfire. We'd call him a short round. We'd call him a hang fire. And most lovingly, we'd call him a dud. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't get off the shot. The Bible says in verse 8 that he binds the stone into the sling. How stupid. The whole purpose is to put the stone in the sling and shoot it out. This guy puts it in and then duct tapes it so he can't lose it. Uh, yeah, you're laughing at that, but I want to tell you, I met a lot of Christians that same way. I mean, they go through the, you know, the sling back here. I keep doing the one like I have at home, uh, but not anymore, but that wasn't the kind of sling they had. They had a long two-piece thing with a little uh, a cup in it, and they put the stone in there, closed it, and then swung it around, and it got, really got some momentum going, and they had the ability to know exactly when to let one string go and fire that stone and nail the guy. And I've seen a lot of God's people that just go around swinging the sling, but they're shooting blanks. They never get anything going downrange. God can't depend on that kind of fool in battle because his sling and stone are stuck together. 
And we talked about last week, that's a picture of a message in the hand of a fool. He swings his arms and makes a lot of noise, but he never gets the stone out of the sling. Paul talked about guys like that over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26, when he says, I therefore so run not as uncertainty, so fight I not as one who beateth the air. He's talking about a guy throwing punches but never hits anybody. He just beats the air. And a guy who, a fool who takes the sling and instead of being a formidable instrument of God in God's hand, he takes the sling, puts the rock in it, or the stone in it, and then binds it in there that he can swing all day long, but there's nothing coming out. A really wise man will place it right where he wants it to go. I go back to David in First Samuel chapter 17. David, David, what a credible story that is. Now, this guy comes out to fight David. He's got greaves of brass on. He's got, he's got a, a male. Va- David knows that if he slings that stone and tries to hit him in the leg or knee, they're going to be protected because he's got greaves of brass that are going to block the, 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 the stone coming in. He's got a coat of mail by which is going to, like a bulletproof vest that's going to stop it. When you study the passage and you look at it, you find that when Goliath saw him coming, he's such a little runt and such a little guy that he laughs at him and he disdains him and he starts, he leaves his spear and the thing that he did that was his undoing is he took his helmet off. And when he took his helmet off, he went, and the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, the helmet of salvation. Here's a picture of an unsaved man. He would go out and fight a battle. He took the helmet off. And when David saw him coming, he's analyzing it. He's saying, he's got greaves on. I can't go for the knee. Can't go for the chest. I certainly just don't want to take on an arm because he can kill him with the other one. Ah, he took his helmet off. And he put it right. You have to pick your target. Oh, David, he knew exactly where he wanted to place that. Here's a guy that was shooting off his mouth defiling the the, the nation of Israel and the God of Israel, disdaining Israel, making fun of him. And little David takes him out in one one shot. And of course, I've always, you got not only got to know how to place your shot, but you got to be ready for anything. If you're going to get into this battle and you're going to be God's sling and you're going to put forth those stones of truth, and you're going to take out the Goliath of life, David was smart. David not only picked his shot, but David was prepared for the inevitable. Because the Bible says he goes down into the brook and he picks up five smooth stones. I've had preachers preach on this sermon and they say that that was a lack of faith on David's part, you know, that he was afraid that the first one wouldn't kill him or maybe he'd miss. And they go on and on and on about that. Almost every commentary I've read on 1 Samuel, that'll be, or 1 Samuel, that'll be what he says. The truth of the matter is, not only did David place the shot where he wanted it to go, he went after the brain, he went after his intellect, he, he, he nailed him right between the eyes. Not only did he do that, but he was prepared because he goes down into the brook and picks up five smooth stones because the Bible says in 2 Samuel 21, verse 18 to 21, that Goliath has got four brothers. And David is prepared not only to take out Goliath, but if the boys want to make this a family affair, he's going to go five for five. So in this warfare, you've got to not only know how to place your shot, you've got to be prepared for the inevitable. You may start out talking to one Jehovah Witness and two more show up. You had to kill all three of them, spiritually speaking, in Jesus' name. You may get in talking to somebody and, on a King James Bible issue and, and some, some two other guys uh, jump in or three other guys jump in to try to help him out. That doesn't scare you. You just take them one at a time or take them on at all. Back in the Old Testament, Dady's My Men of Valor, 900 to 1 was pretty good odds. You got to place your shot. You got to be prepared for the inevitable. And then the last part of verse 8 So is he that giveth honor to fools. Now, 
giving honor to a fool would be like talking about a great gun that you have that does not fire. You laugh at that, but in Japan, you cannot own a firearm. But, that there, but there's hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of firearm collectors in, in, in Japan. You see, you can buy the gun, but you can't own it till you send it to somebody and they fix it so it can never fire again. Then you can put it on your wall. You can put it in your collection. You can say, hey, this is, this is my six-inch stainless steel Colt Python. You know what they're worth today? A lot of money. So you take that gun, buy it over here for what, two or $3,000, ship it to Japan. Before you can pick it up, guy's got to go in and fix it so it'll never fire. And all you can do is hold it and look at it and show somebody. But you can't shoot anything out of it. I had a guy over here that ran a huge auction house years ago. His name was Ron Mannion. Uh, Ron, Ron was a good friend of mine, and uh, his mom actually uh, used to watch me on television. She, she really liked my preaching, and I'd go over there, and he ran a, a worldwide auction house. I remember back in the day when he was running it out of his basement in his home. Then he built an absolutely, incredibly huge complex. And he was selling stuff. The auction was a worldwide auction, military auction. Had everything on it you could ever want. Uh, look for it. People would send it in, and, you know, he'd consign it and put it on. And I remember I, he was taking me on a tour, and he took me down into the basement, and there was, I, I had a heart attack. They had all these German World War II officers' daggers, which are phenomenally rare. And, I mean, a chained officer's SS dagger is probably today $20,000. Back then, they were four, five, six thousand dollars. This is 30, 20, 30 years ago. And I'm standing there and I'm looking at all these, and I look over, and here's a guy or a gal taking these six thousand dollar daggers, putting them in a vise, and snapping the blades off at inch and a half, two inches. I'm dying. <coughs> I said, Ron. What? And he said, oh, they've been bought by collectors in Japan. In Japan, you can't have own a knife that has a blade any longer than two inches. So they take these million, uh, thousands of dollars worth of knives, millions of dollars when you put them all together, and snap the blade before they send them over, and then they put them in the sheath and hang them on the wall and look at it. And I thought to myself, how worthless is that? It's about as worthless as a child of God who binds his stone in a sling, and he can't shoot either. He's a great showpiece. He looks like that Colt Python. He looks like that Dirty Harry gun, that Smith & Wesson Model 29. He looks, at, he looks like, look at this rifle. Look at this, look at this scope on this. How, how's it group? Well, you can't shoot it. What good is a weapon, no matter how pretty and beautiful it is on the outside, if it can't do business when you need it? And I say this, what good is a child of God who looks good on the outside, but when God needs him to do the business, he can't do it? What he's talking about. Giving honor to a fool would be like talking a great weapon and, 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 de, and, and demilling it to the point where you, you can't fire it. it. It looks good, but it's worthless. Now, we see this concept in life uh, as all through this country, all through the world, how we bestow uh, one fool bestows honor on another. Now, I, I, I'm not fighting anybody because I like some of this stuff too, but I'm just making my point. Did you ever see the Country Music Awards? No, no I'm not fighting it. I like country music. I do. I, I'm, I'm, I'm country. I was country before country was cool. <laughs> but you get these people up here that wrote these songs, and they're good songs, and they're bestowing all these on. And my point is this. A hundred million years from tonight, would it matter? But we have, the, we have all these awards. We have the Gospel Music Awards. We have the, you know, we have the uh, Academy Awards. Best Actor. Best Supporting Actor. Best Picture. Best Color. Best Sound. Best Music. Uh, the Golden Globe Awards. The, you know, the Miss America, the Miss Universe. Mr. America, Miss Universe. I mean, you take the most beautiful, voluptuous woman on the planet that walks out on that stage in the bikini as Miss Universe, and at the great way and throw judgment, she's going to be Miss Maggot. <laughs> who cares? The world does. 
I mean, we have the we have the football Hall of Fame. We have the baseball Hall of Fame. Every year, the most valuable player, rookie of the year. I get it. I'm not against it. I think it's wonderful. But the verse says, giving honor to a fool is worthless. And we see fools laying honor after honor. Everyone want to see this really work good, just go down to Springfield, Missouri to a Baptist Bible Fellowship meeting. Boy, it is one rear end kissing after another. It is bringing up Dr. So-and-so by Dr. So-and-so, and and I want to introduce you to Dr. So-and-so. Thank you, doctor. Thank you, doctor. You, there's so many doctors down there, you think God was sick. (laughs) Fools laying honor after honor on fools. And what they accomplish in life is worthless. And it'll be burned up either at the great white throne judgment or the judgment seat of Christ. And as I said, 100 million years from today, nobody's going to ever care. In Canton, Ohio, which is where I'm from, they have what they call the Football Hall of Fame. It's one of the greatest things that you could ever go to. Nothing wrong with it. It's really good. And uh, it was picked in Canton. Most people don't know this because football in America started in Canton, Ohio with the old McKinley Bulldog team way back in the day. So it was the place that they chose to put it in there. And it's, it's great. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to go see. And uh, uh, it's, uh, I, I, you won't believe this. When I was in high school, I was in the marching band, and that was the first year they had the uh, uh, Hall of Fame game, the first one. They just opened it. And our high school band did the halftime show at the first uh, Hall of Fame game. They played the uh, Redskins versus somebody. I don't remember. But I, it, we did it. It was, you know, it was a big deal. And, you know, I'm all for it. I'm not fighting it at all. If you go to Canton, go through it. But my home church, Canton Baptist Temple, Dr. Harold Henniger, years ago, long before they did the Football Hall of Fame, he started something at the Canton Baptist Temple, which was unique. And he put in, because of the idea of putting in the football hall of fame he got the idea of putting in the christian hall of fame and down the hallways of that church which is a huge church the church is probably twice the size of this property that all this building's on the parking lot twice that size maybe bigger uh, it's huge and you walk down these halls and they're starting from early christianity right up to uh, the time that we live you'll find these portraits with a little bio on each one of these guys and it was the christian hall of fame at I thought it was always tremendous. But you know what? I bet they don't have 10 people a year go through that. I bet they have 10 people a minute going through the football one. And that just goes to show you. I mean, there's where honor needs to be looked at and honor toward the men and the women who have given their lives in the preaching of the gospel. I mean, every one of them was an instrument of war in the hand of God. And boy, they slung out some stones. But we're more interested in a guy running there and throwing a dead pig at 50 yards and making a touchdown. That's just where we are. Now look at verse 9. Then as a thorn getteth up into the hand of a drunkard, so is a parable in the mouth of a fool. Now here's our parables again. And I told you last week how vitally important they are to the whole concept of the Bible. I made it clear that you didn't have to know everything about the parables to be able to minister for God to use you. But I'm telling you, if you ever want to get your Bible together, you've got to understand the parables. And looking at the verse here, you might think that it's talking about the same thing as last week. But uh, it sounds and looks like it does, but it's not. The trained eye will see something totally different here around the same parables. And uh, we're going to talk about that. Now, again... I want to break down this verse into a couple of different aspects so we can better understand it. Number one, he says, the thorn uh, in the hand of a drunkard. Now, just so we know, thorns in the Bible uh, will always be connected with a curse back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18. It's connected with uh, the sins uh, that we get into in Joshua chapter 23, verse 13. And when Christ died on the cross and became sin for you and for me, The crowning aspect of his death on the cross was the crown of thorns that they put on his head, and he became sin for you who knew no sin that we might be made the righteous of God in him. 
and it was the crown of thorns. So thorns in the Bible are always going to be connected to sin, just so you know that. And then we have the second thing, we have the drunkard here. Now I get, I get, I know what a drunkard is, I understand that. But it's not necessarily uh, talking about a drunkard that is drunk on booze all the time. But we know from Revelation chapter 17, verse 2, and Revelation chapter 18, verse 3, that uh, when the Antichrist shows up and his religion and all the things, that there are people in the world who get drunk with the wine of their fornication, the very religion. In other words, you can get drunk on the world without ever taking a drink of booze. You can get drunk on anything in this world without ever touching a bottle. Drunkenness is in excess. And when it gets, a man gets to be a drunkard and he drinks in excess, he loses control of his life and the, and, the, and, the, and the booze takes over or whatever he's got drunken with. And when you get in excess of the world, the world takes over and you become liberated to that just like a drunk does to the bottle. And then here again, he likens to a parable in the mouth of a fool. Now, let's look at this for a moment. Last week, as I said, we talked about the parables, how key they are, how that they are an exact truth doctrinally uh, put in a mystery form because of a man, uh, the nation of Israel, rejection of the truth in Matthew chapter 12. And at that point, then all of the things that Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom to Israel now goes into parables or mysteries because of their unbelief. And we get the idea that there's some heavenly language, some heavenly metaphor truth. That's not true. They're exact doctrinal truths that when you understand them and you can take them apart and put them through the places in the Bible, it opens up the whole Bible for you. And it's absolutely necessary to understand at some point in your life if you're ever going to learn your Bible. And I say it again, you can work with people, you can preach, you can do things without ever getting them. But if you want to learn your Bible, that's another thing. You're going to have to get them down. Now, now look at this. Last week, we saw this thing about the parable in the mouth of a fool. It had to do with his legs, his walk with God, him being lame or unequal or out of balance. A couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, now out of Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 11, we talked about Asa, who was a king of Israel. And the Bible says he was a king and he started to take the things that were the glorified things of God and give them to the world and uh, the other nations. And then he got a disease in his feet. And the Bible says that that disease in his feet is a picture of you and me getting into the world system and then getting a spiritual disease on our feet where we quit walking with God. And the Bible says that he went to the physicians instead of going and getting it right with God. He could have went to God, got it right, got healed, but on his way. Uh-uh. He goes to the world system for his help because he'd already turned to the world system and gave them everything that God counted holy. And they died. God killed him. So we saw last time how that the parable in the mouth of a fool had to do with his legs. Now here... It's not a parable about his walk or his legs or his unevenness or being out of balance, but what he does with his hands that counted them as thorns or sin. So one place we have a reference to the parable in the mouth of a fool where he goes. The other one we have a parable in the mouth of a fool of what he does. And you don't want to miss that. Only a fool could. Because the lesson becomes so clear. Not only does God have somewhere that he wants to send you with his message, that you're not a fool with a message. God has somewhere he wants to send you. This last week, God sent somebody up to to Lincoln. God God has a message. He wants to send you someplace with that message. He wants to use you as a slingshot with the message of truth in a stone And he wants you to fire those things and launch those things to people. But not only does God have somewhere that he wants to send you with his message in your legs, but he has a work that he wants you to do with your hands. And a great question for all of us all the time is, who in our life at this point are we building? What in our life are we building? That's the real question. 
What in, what in, with all of the natural resources, the things that we have, the things that God gave us when we get saved, how are we utilizing those resources to build something for God and go with the message where God wants us to go? And you have to know the Bible parables to get both done if you're going to get to that point. You know, in Proverbs chapter 31, there's a great picture of you and me. And that picture is laid out in the story of the virtuous woman. And we're going to look at that uh, when we get to 31, and we'll have a great time with it. But just skimming through it this week, just in light of where I'm at, I got thinking about it, and I went back there, and I thought, you know, I want to look at this. And you know what? When it came to that virtuous woman who's a picture of your life and my life and what we do, I found seven references to her hands. And they were incredible. In, in verse 13, it says that she seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. Now, the key words here in this verse are, are willing and her hands. She's willing to take what she does. And if you study this, she's busy making clothes all the time. And the Bible says that she makes the clothes, which is a picture of a covering, picture of the Word of God, that her children will not be cold in winter. The clothes here is a picture of the clothings, the garments of salvation that she's doing willingly with her hands and she's covering people with them. Verse 16, it says, She considered a field and buyeth it, and with the fruit of her hands she planteth a vineyard. She sees the world and she sees that Christ died for it and she realizes that in this world God has some place that he wants her to go. You know what? I don't know all the thing about you, but I do know this, wherever you were in life, wherever you were born, wherever you lived, wherever, for whatever reason, God chose to put all of our paths together. Amen. Some a long time ago, some 10, 15 years ago, some a couple of weeks ago, uh, but God chose that. You had no say in it. God looked down through heaven, and you know what? Some of you were in some weird places. Some are in some bad places. I look at some of you and I honestly don't know how you ever got here. The odds against you being here today and being where you're at in the Bible are so against you that it has to be just God. There's no human man. There's no human factor that can, you can factor in and say, well, that was the determining factor. His uncle did this or his aunt did this. or No, 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 no. Some of your lives were so out of touch with reality. Some of you came from, from all over the place. You, were, you never even heard of this place before. And the hand of God saw fit to bring everybody here today. It's no accident that you're here today. And the virtuous woman here, she looks at the field that God died for. The field's the world, Matthew 13. And in that field, she says, there's some place that God wants me to go. And she allows God to take her to her own personal field, which for you is Kansas City in this church, as it is for me. And then the Bible says, with the fruit, not just her hands, with the fruit of her hands, she planted the vineyard. She worked willingly with her hands, and she saw the field, and she began to take with her hands and bear fruit. And with that fruit, she planted a vineyard. Verse 20 says, verse 19 says, She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold to the staff. Now the spindle is where she would weave, and the staff is the uh, unused flax that she would make into thread. And it's clearly showing that her hands are completely, totally involved in the work. And the work is to make clothes for people's covering when the cold comes. Many of you are out in the cold. Many of you are out there in the blistering cold of this old world. You know what? When God brought you here, you got a new coat. You got earmuffs. You got goulashes. You got snow pants. Keep it coming. I got out, so I'm not done yet. <laughs> That's what, you know, the world is a blistering cold wasteland. And nothing will warm you up by warming your heart more than that precious book and the covering of God's blood 
and a place where you can come that you know people love you. Nobody's going to hurt you. And you're here because God decided to bring you here. I have no doubt that God had decided to bring you here. My question is, do you understand that God decided to bring you here? And if you did, why are you binding your stone in the sling? Why aren't you shooting it out of there? Verse 20 says, she stretches out her hands to the poor. And she reaches forth her hands to the needy. She, she sees beyond her own self. She sees the need out there in people's lives. And she realizes that there's two things that's going to fix that. One's her willing to go and her walk and her willing to do the work in her hands. Then the last thing he says in verse 31. Wow. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. And my dear friend, that is a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. That is a reference to you standing there on that day and the fruit of your hands praising you for what you allowed God to do in your life. A, a, a weapon that God could use to reach the world. You know, hands is an incredible study. When you get into the book of Psalms, Psalms 8, 6 talks about the work of our hands to do all that God really wants us to do. Psalm 7, 3 talks about the iniquity that's found in our hands that will stop us from doing what God wants us to do. You know, in preparation of being that sling to where God wants you to go and what God wants you to do, Psalms 18, 34 says, he teacheth my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. Psalms 144 verse 1 says, Blessed be the Lord my strength which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. You see, God wants to strengthen your hands. He wants to use your fingers. And I can't impress upon you that your hands, and when he says there, my fingers to fight, is nothing more than your hands open up these book and your fingers flipping through the pages to find the principles, the stones that you're going to put into your sling. Psalms 90, verse 17. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. What an incredible verse. It simply says that the work that God does with our hands establishes the beauty of the Lord. What you allow God to do with your life and your hands, where you allow him to send you to this world, establishes to the lost world, the friends that you with, when they see it in your life and they see your dedication, they see you as the virtuous woman doing what the Bible says, you know what it does? In their mind, it establishes the beauty of the Lord. What a great lesson for all of us on our walk, our legs, and our hands, our work. You see... You're my work, and I invested in you, and now you're working with somebody else. You're investing in them. You're going to get them to invest in somebody else with their work, and the process just keeps going on. And that's the way God intended it to be. So, I mean, we have, we have seen some really great stuff here. I mean, we really have. God wants us to carry the message to the world. But he can't use a fool. You're going to have to use a wise man. And there's an enemy out there that's going to try to stop you. And you're in a warfare. And if you try to attack this thing in Christianity as some mamsy-pamsy, get along with everybody, you're going to get swallowed up in this thing. You've got to be an instrument of war in the hands of God, spiritually speaking. You've got to be that sling that God can fire the stones of truth and strategically place that truth right where it's going to do the most damage. And God wants you and me to be that formidable weapon in his hand, a sling, that'll put those stones of truth and hit the adversary right where it counts, with a headshot where his intellectual mind tries to get around everything that God is doing, and you hit him there. Or he's out in the world doing the things of the world, so you take him out at the knees, choosing our targets like David did. 
having understanding, perception, and discernment is the order of the day. But no, no, instead we sit around and we glorify each other. We honor each other. We talk about how good so-and-so is. I, I always had a, a question. I, I, I keep it to myself. I've done it a few times, but I'll hear somebody get up and I'll say, you know, what we say is all relative. If there isn't a point of truth to it, everything really doesn't mean anything. I had a guy say one time, talking about a pastor, and he said, I want you guys to know he's really did a good job. And I asked myself, compared to who? What's your point of reference? He did a really good job. Compared to who? I mean, it's your point of, I mean, anybody can do a job compared to somebody who's doing no job. He said, well, he's a really good man compared to, compared to who? Adolf Hitler? Osama bin Laden? Yeah, that's a statement. It's a relative statement if you don't have a point of reference. And we do it all the time. Well, I'll tell you what, he's a really good guy. Really? And I say, compared to who? Well, he's done a, he's, he's built a great church. Compared to whose church? There has to be an absolute point of truth in what we, and what we say that brings it back as the reference point. But we just glorify each other. We get up and we talk about this guy, this girl, this, this pastor, this church, this, that, this, that. And it's all relative unless you have something that, that uh, well, he really knows the Bible. Compared to who? I mean, what is your what is your reference point? We like to sit around, and I'm not saying you don't give honor to who honor is due, but a lot of these guys out there haven't done anything; they're not building anything, and yet because we're in the good old boys club, we have to just honor everybody and pat everybody on the back. That's why I don't hang out with that crowd. I just I just I wouldn't last five minutes. And out of our chapter so far. And we're going to add to it in the weeks to come. But right now, out of our chapter so far, we've learned five great truths. First of all, there's a message that needs to be delivered. And you need to prepare yourself to deliver that message so you make sure that it's not in the hand of a fool. And then there's a work to be done. There's something God wants you to do. He gave you hands for it. I've, we've seen it over and over again tonight, today. There's a work to be done. And God has something that he wants you to do. And then the third thing, there's a ministry to be established. You have to establish yourself in the work of God. The fourth thing is that there's a warfare to be fought. You have to see this thing as it is, and you have to realize that God is counting on you. I mean, he went back to heaven and trusted the battle to you and to me. There's times the time that I'll run into somebody who, and, and there's all, I think there's like 29 people watching online today. And I know that the majority of them, most of them, uh, if not, not all of them, you know, they're out someplace here or maybe they're sick today or whatever. But from time to time, I'll run into somebody that uh, should be in our church on Sunday morning, but just decided that they don't go to church anymore. And they, they, uh, they just stay home and watch it on YouTube. They don't go to church anywhere. They think that their Christian life is, is okay. Uh, and it's your call. I'm not, I'm just saying, but they, I'm just telling you, they think their Christian life is okay, never going to church, never being part of a church, and just checking in on Sunday morning and, and getting the sermon that I'm preaching and probably got the little notebook there and get a little warm, fuzzy feeling, probably got the little latte next to them and, uh, or the little poodle sitting there <laughs> snarling things up. And, 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 you know, and they think that, and I'll bump into them every once in a while. And, and I'm cool. I really am. I, I, I don't say a lot of times what I think. But they'll come up to me and they'll say something like, well, you know what? Uh, I, I, I know you don't like this, but I, I, we, don't, we don't come to church. We just stay home and we just, we just watch it. Uh, you know, and, uh, and, and they want to be buddy-buddy, and I'm cool. I am. I'm cool. Uh, and I just say, you know, and I say, well, nice to see you. you know, and, and, but, I, but I'll tell you what. It upsets me, and I'll, I'll look right you in the face and tell you if you're watching. Well, you know why it upsets me? Because you're letting me do all the work. You need to be here picking up your share of the load. 
But you see, you've opted out of, of the ministry. You've opted out of your hands. You've opted out of your legs. You're lame. You sit there at your kitchen table on your couch, and maybe I'm on your big screen TV. Isn't that a scary thought? <laughs> and you're sitting there, and you're enjoying it. And my job right now for the next 30 seconds is to take that joy from you. <laughs> You say, well, I don't like that. So what are you going to do? Quit coming to church? <laughs> no, people like you put more burden on people like these. You need to be here, pick up your load, carry the load, bear the cross, get the job done, get in. But for whatever reason, you've chose to be on the sidelines, yet you want, to, you want to get all the gravy of the Bible we have. You just don't want, you want me and my folks here to do all the work. I don't appreciate that. I love you. That was a very small stone I threw your way. I got one under here to take your house out. The bottom line is, you know what? Hey, God has something that he wants you to do. There's a ministry to be established. And there's a warfare to be fought. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 that, hey, I don't know if you never read Ecclesiastes. Maybe I ought to teach that next time. It says in chapter 8, there's no discharge. Where did you get your discharge not to be here today? Where did you get your discharge? The church doesn't matter. It's the process that God uses to build you, to get you ready to deliver the message, to do the work that needs to be done, uh, to the, for, the, for the ministry to be established, for the warfare to be fought. And you and I need to understand that we are God's instrument of war to get it done with our hands, that he teaches us to war a good warfare as a good soldier of Jesus Christ in 1 Timothy 1.18. That he teaches us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, that you and I to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He says in 2 Timothy 2, 9, uh, that I may please him who hath called me to be a soldier. Not home. You need to be, you, 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 can't, you can't please him by sitting on the sidelines. You have to be in the forefront of the battle as the, as the weapon of God, not in the rear with the gear. And Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, is the captain of our salvation. And with our hands, he, that he teaches us to war a good, solid fight. And with our feet and our legs that are strong, that is balanced, to carry the message in the hand to a lost world and to establish the beauty of the Lord by our hands. And with those two aspects, the head and the feet, we establish how God is who he is. You know, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. When you got saved, God started that work. Now, you opt out of it someplace along the line, obviously. But I want to tell you, God started his work in you the day you got saved. And we here at this church, our job is to help you develop that work, to get you to the place where you become that formidable weapon. And at some point through the biblical process of investing uh, your life uh, in others, uh, they too will begin a work and on and on it goes. Uh, with the fingers of her hand, she planted a vineyard. You know, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 29 <clears throat> God told Adam that all the trees he put in the garden, they're all fruit-bearing trees. They're all trees that have their seed within themselves, that he'd never have to plant another apple tree. The apples would fall, they would, they would uh, go into the ground, the seed would be there, and more trees would pop up. And the garden of God <clears throat> was filled with trees that just kept bearing fruit of their own. Once God put it in the ground and planted it, and it grew and it got to a point in its growth, it automatically just kept producing fruit all its life. And the trees that it produced, they produced fruit, and there's an endless line of fruit. That's the way you ought to look at yourself in this garden of God that he's planted you in. Your job is to grow to a point, and you have the seed within you, the word of God, and you bear fruit in somebody else, and that tree bears fruit, and it owes an endless process. God got you here. 
He got you from Lincoln. He got you from Kansas City, all around this city. He's bringing some up from Texas. He's bringing Taylor from Wichita, all over the city, all over the state, and sometimes all over the country. And they just keep coming, and God keeps bringing them. And he, he brings them here simply because of the fact that this is the way station by which we can take and build them into that weapon that God wants them to use. And once you're here, we go to work with, on, on you with our hands. We start to teach you, show you, give you. We start to go to work with your legs and strengthen you, make you strong, make you able to run great distance, maybe able to endure. Planting this vineyard, our work, with the work of our hands, planting it one person at a time. There's no mass evangelism today. There never was. That idea dropped out in the 60s and the 70s as a, as a failure. You want to build a church, you want to build a ministry, you want to affect the world and Christianity, you got to do it one person at a time, one couple at a time, one family at a time. You got to take what God gives you when God brings them to you and then invest your life in them and give them what they need. That tree grows up and the seed in itself bears other fruit. Putting forth a word of truth just like that guy with a sling. Puts that stone in that thing and shoots that out there and those stones of truth impact. They impact where a man thinks and they impact where a man walks. It'll change how he thinks. It'll change how he walks. Problem is, we don't want to be that sling. Oh, we want to be, we want to be popular. We want to be nice. We want people to look at it. But secretly, where everybody's out in a battle, we're duct taping our stone so it doesn't go out. And we yell and scream and swing the sling, but nothing ever goes downrange and you never hit anybody. You're like the weapon collections in Japan. They're beautiful. They're absolutely some of the most rarest things you ever saw in your life, but none of them shoot. That's God's people today. Shooting forth the truth of God like a stone shot out of a sling in the Old Testament to reach out to those who need the truth. And you and I are the only way that God gets it out. You and I need to become that formidable sling, that weapon in God's hand that God can take the stones of truth, the principles, the concepts, everything in that book and fire them out one at a time and pick our target, understanding our target, realizing the target, and then giving them everything that God would have us to give them. Well, we'll hold up there. 